You're listening to audio from Highland Baptist Church in Waco, Texas. To find out more about Highland, go to www.hbcwaco.org. You can be seated and good morning, 10 o'clock. Good to have you here today. Some of y'all who have returned from spring break, welcome back to Waco. We're in a series called Finally Home, and we're seeing together what God says in his word to us about heaven. Where is it? What does it look like? What are we going to do when we get there? How do we get there? So let's begin today with just a a few little parameters, maybe if you will, a foundation upon which we can build uh, the rest of this morning together. First of all, our relationship with, with earth and heaven and hell. It's really important for us to understand that relationship before we really dive any deeper today into the passage that we'll be in together. Well, what is our relationship like with, with earth, with heaven, with hell? Here's the first thing if you're note takers today. Earth leads directly to heaven or directly to hell. According to God, that's the only two options we see in Scripture. I think it's really important for us to all be on the same page here. The Bible does not speak of a purgatory or a second chance or a reset button. There's an appointed time for us to die, and then the judgment is made of that eternal location. So the next chapter after life on earth is done is a real place called heaven or a real place called hell. There's not biblically a third option. You don't have to turn there, but on the screen behind me, look at Hebrews chapter 9, verses 27 through 28. God's word comes to us and says, just as man is destined to die once, and after that, so there's that directly, direct link to either heaven or to hell, to, and after that, to face judgment. So here's the gospel. So Christ was sacrificed once to take away the sins of many people and he will appear a second time. Not to crawl up onto a cross, not to bear sin, but to bring salvation, rescue to those who are waiting for him. So earth leads directly either to heaven or to hell. Secondly, the best of life on earth is just a glimpse of heaven. Consider the most beautiful place you've ever seen on earth. Hawaii, the Grand Canyon, the Alps, Chick-fil-A. I mean, whatever the most beautiful place that you can think of on earth. Now consider also the courage of a fireman running into a burning building. Consider the bravery of Ukrainians fighting for their homes. Consider the happiness of your team winning it all. Being honored for your hard work, the wonder of holding a newborn baby. The best of life things on earth is just a mere glimpse of heaven. But thirdly, the worst of life on earth is a glimpse of hell. Consider your your loneliest day. The most devastating phone call you've ever received. Consider the chaos and the tension of of a pandemic terrorism, watching a war unfold on TV this weekend, floods, hurricanes, tornadoes, losses that you have experienced, betrayals that you have experienced. The worst of life on earth is just a mere glimpse of what hell is going to be like. Fourthly, just foundational building we're doing here. For Christians, this life is the closest they will come to hell. Daughter of God, son of God, this is the worst it will ever be. 
This is the worst it gets. And most of our days aren't that bad. Most of our days are, are fairly mundane. Most of our days don't end in catastrophic stories. This, Christian, is the closest we're going to get to hell. Waco is the closest you're going to get to hell. Probably Lubbock more than Waco, but both of those places really close. If you know, you know. Fifthly, let's just lost all of our panhandle people today. For unbelievers, this life is the closest they'll come to heaven. So non-Christian, non-believer, my friend, this is the best it gets. Even with all the stress of this life, the disappointments of this life, the griefs that, griefs that you have borne in this life, all those times, non-Christian, when things did not go your way, this is the best it's going to get for those who rejected the glorious grace of the gospel of Jesus. This is the best there is for those who reject heaven. This is the closest you'll ever get there today. With those five things in mind, would you go to our passage we're going to be in together today, the Gospel of Luke, Luke chapter 16. Luke is in the New Testament, three books in, Matthew, Mark, Luke. We're going to be in this passage and this passage alone today. Luke chapter 16, as you turn there, I just want you to know that the story that Jesus is going to tell us today is unforgettable. It is so distinctive because it's really unlike any other story he told. Luke chapter 16, we'll begin in verse 19. In your Bible, your copy of God's Word, it might give the heading there, the rich man and Lazarus. This, this is not Lazarus who was raised from the dead by Jesus, one of Jesus' closest friends, the brother of Mary and Martha. This is not that Lazarus. Luke chapter 16, verse 19. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate laid a poor man named Lazarus covered with sores who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. Sorry, we're getting close to lunchtime. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, Remember that you in your lifetime received your good things and Lazarus in like manner, bad things. But now he is comforted here and you are in anguish. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able and none may cross from there to us. And he, the rich man, said, Then I beg you, Father, I beg you, Abraham, to send him, Lazarus, to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that they may warn them. He may warn them, lest they also come to this place of torment. But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. He said to him, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets... Neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. Hmm. Don't 
Don't close your Bibles. This is a story about a rich man. He would be understood in the context as Jesus was telling this story to be a man who was blessed by God. Because the Pharisees, the religious leaders of the day, they believed, they had their own sort of, of, of twisted prosperity gospel. They saw poor people as cursed and rich people, wealthy people as, as blessed. So this man right here was seemingly blessed by God. Here's a man who was living life to, to the maximum. He enjoys the best that life can bring him without any limitations at all. He dressed, it says here in verse 29, in the finest of clothes, in purple and in fine linen. That word clothed right there in Greek is, the, is in, in perfect tense, which means it was a daily occurrence for him. Every day he was in his best attire. Every day he was dressed in purple and in fine linen. And he feasted. It says here also in verse 19, that word feasted also is imperfect tense, which means it was continually done. He was always eating this food that was sumptuous every day. That word sumptuously that's in ESV is a great word. In Greek it's the word uh, euphrino. It's where we get our English word euphoric. So in other words, he ate and he loved it. And his house was big enough, verse 20, to even have a gate. I mean, he surely expects to go to heaven because he also probably, in this twisted prosperity gospel, believed that God was on his side because God had given him all this wealth. He expects to go to heaven, but he ends up in hell. But here's another man, an extremely poor man who has a name. His name is Lazarus, that the religious leaders thought by evidence of his life was cursed by God, who ends up when he dies in heaven. This is a story then about a man who is shocked to find himself in hell. By the way, hell is filled with people who are surprised. Equally shocking to those who are listening to the story was this idea that a poor man was in heaven. This was contrary to all of their expectations. Listen to all the great reversals, if you will, of this story that Jesus tells. The poor man becomes rich. The rich man becomes poor. And the poor man becomes richer than the rich man had ever experienced richness. And the rich man becomes poorer than the poor man had ever experienced poverty. In the story, pre-death, you have a poor man who's living outside of the house on earth. And you have a rich man on the inside of his house. Then comes death. And now you have a poor man on the inside and a rich man on the outside. You have a poor man with no food on earth and a rich man with all the food with which he can stuff himself. But after death, you have a poor man who is now feasting at a heavenly banquet and a rich man with absolutely nothing. On earth, you have a poor man who desires everything. You have a rich man who desires nothing. But then you have a rich man who will never have his desires fulfilled and a poor man who has all of his desires fulfilled. You have a poor man who's tormented on earth and a rich man who's happy on earth. But on the other side, you have a poor man who's happy and a rich man who's tormented. You have a poor man on earth who wants a crumb, a rich man who is feasting. Then at death you have a poor man who's at a feast and a rich man who really just wants a drop of water. You have a poor man who has no dignity in his death. Did you notice not even a burial was mentioned? But you have a rich man who does have dignity in death. See this in verse 22. His burial is mentioned. Then you have a, a poor man who has no dignity, who has dignity after death, and his name is Lazarus, and a rich man who has no dignity after death. We don't even know his name. So in life, you have a poor man with no hope and a rich man with all the hope the world has to offer. But 
then you have a rich man with no hope and a poor man who has all of his hope realized. I think you get the point. This isn't a parable. This is a story. A true story because names are used. Lazarus' name is used. Abraham's name is used. It's telling an actual account. It's recalling an actual conversation that Jesus has heard because he speaks now of actually two real places, heaven and hell. So here's my one question for the day, but it does have seven answers to it. (laughs) What is life like in heaven? I want to show you seven things from this passage that Jesus just taught us just then. I want to show you seven things from this passage for those of you who are here today who are planning on going to heaven or for those here today that has someone there presently that you love and you miss. Number one, believers are relocated from earth to heaven. Verse 22 and verse 23, with your Bible still open, the poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died he was buried. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far, far off. There was no side trip. There was no waiting period. There was no holding cell. Lazarus, immediately after his death, went to Abraham's side. Now, for the Jewish audience hearing this, Abraham's side, they fully understood, meant the comfort of God or the comfort of Father Abraham or paradise or what we would call today heaven. Lazarus went there immediately after death. The rich man, where did he go immediately? To Hades. The the New Testament audience would understand that as a place of separation, a place of torment, a place of fire. We see this in the story, place of hell, immediately after his death. These are the two options that God gives us. Immediate transfer to heaven or immediate transfer to hell. And Paul affirms this in 2 Corinthians chapter 4 when he says to be absent from this body means immediately to be present with Christ. It's an immediate relocation. Secondly, believers are escorted to heaven by angels. See this in verse 22. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. Now that's interesting information for me. I know it's a small detail in this passage here, but for those of you who have lost a Christian parent or a Christian spouse or a Christian friend, you've lost a child and you weren't with them when they passed, This brings great comfort knowing that God's messengers are there with believers when they die. Angels are not just messengers of God. They're also messengers of the comfort of God. Hebrews chapter 1, Acts chapter 17, excuse me, Acts chapter 27 tells us that. If it seems like your loved one in Christ died alone, they did not. Not to even mention that Christ himself was with them. One of the greatest fears of Americans today is to die alone. That need not be the fear for those who are in Christ. We actually have angels. Did you see that? Verse 22, plural. Not just an angel, not just like your angel buddy, but we have angels, a company of them, escort us to heaven. It's no surprise at all when you go over to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, when we talk and see about the, the return of Christ, Christ coming back, as Christ calls his own upward, who else is there? An angel. Thirdly, we have memory from time on earth. Verse 25, Abraham actually uses that word. But Abraham said, child, speaking of the rich man, remember, there it is, remember. 
Remember that you in your lifetime, you received your good things. And Lazarus and like, he, he received bad things. But now he is comforted here and you are in anguish. And so Abraham is asking this, this rich man to remember. We see kind of the same memory happening in verse 27 and verse 28. And he, the rich man, said, Then I beg you, Abraham, send him, send Lazarus to my father's house. I have five brothers. He remembers this so that they may be warned, lest they also come into this place of torment. For Christians as well, Revelation chapter 6, verse 10 speaks of the martyrs, those who died in Christ, those who were killed for their faith. As they were speaking to Christ, they were remembering their life on earth. They remembered how they were killed. They, they remembered those who even killed them. And so the martyrs remembered their life on earth. Let me just tell you, I personally find this very comforting. That my friends who have died in Christ, my grandparents who have died in Christ, that they have a memory of life spent here with us. You're not forgotten by the grandmother who died knowing the Lord. You're not forgotten by the spouse who died knowing the Lord. You're not forgotten by your child. We have a memory from our time on earth. Fourthly, we are still individuals and recognizable. Verse 23 and 24, you'll probably have memorized by the end of the day today. Let's go back to it again. Verse 23, and in Hades, being in torment, he, the rich man, lifted up his eyes and he saw Abraham far off and he saw Lazarus at his, at his side and he called out to Father Abraham and asked him for, for mercy. So Abraham and, and Lazarus, they were recognized in heaven. When we get to heaven, Christian, we're not ghosts, we're not angels, we're not some discombobulated blob in heaven, we're not merely spirits. We are individuals and recognizable. That's the number one question I get about heaven. Will I know my friend? Will I know my mom? Will I know my granddad? Yes. King Saul recognized Samuel after Samuel had already died. Saw him in heaven. Um, the disciples saw Moses and Elijah after their death on the Mount of Transfiguration and they knew who those two men were. We're still individuals. We're still recognizable. Fifthly, there's community in heaven. Verse 23 and verse 24. Let's just do 23 this time. In Hades, the rich man being in torment, he lifted up his eyes. He saw Abraham far off and he saw Lazarus. This is a key phrase, at his side. You see Lazarus by Abraham's side. There is no mention of community or togetherness in hell. But there's fellowship in heaven. There's, there's togetherness in heaven. There's community in heaven. That's why we enjoy practicing it so much here on earth today. We love being in community with our Christian friends. We love that togetherness. We love that friendship. The pronouns of heaven are always plural. Let me just prove that to you. The pronouns of heaven in the book of Revelation are always Plural. Revelation chapter 19, verse 1. I heard what seemed to be a loud voice of a great multitude in heaven crying out, Hallelujah, salvation and glory and power belong to our God. Revelation 19, verses 6 and 7. I heard what seemed to be also a voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exalt and give him glory. 
Revelation chapter 7, verses 14 through 17. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore, they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. They shall hunger no more. They shall thirst no more. The sun will not strike them nor any scorching heat. For the Lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd. And he will guide them to springs of living water and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Heaven is filled with friendships. It's filled with togetherness. It's filled with community. No one is ever lonely in heaven. Sixthly, we have a physical bodily form. Guess what verses we're going to go to? Verse 23 and verse 24. And in Hades, being tormented, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and saw Lazarus at his side. And he called out, he vocalized, Father Abraham, have mercy on me. Send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue. For here I am in the anguish in this flame. Do you see that? Verse 23, eyes were lifted up. Uh, verse 24, Lazarus has a finger, at least. Verse 24, the, the rich man has a tongue. Verse 24, the, the rich man has thirst. Verse 24, he feels the flames around him. We have these physical bodily forms even before the day of resurrection when we are reunited with our restructured and rebuilt bodies. When we get to heaven, we will know each other and recognize each other. We're not going to be floating around with harps and wings. We'll know each other. And that's great reason to be really nice now to the people around you. That's great reason to love that person right behind you. That person right in front of you. Because Christian, we're going to be there forever and we will know each other. And we will recognize each other. And I don't know if we'll have name tags or our memories will be so great that we'll just know everybody's name but today's great practice to love other believers because we will be with each other forever and we will know each other and we will have physical bodily forms in heaven. Seventhly, and the most important, no one can cross the gap between heaven and hell. So says Jesus. Verse 26, and besides all this, between us and you, between heaven and hell, between the saved and the unsaved, there's a great chasm, and it's been fixed. In other words, it is set so that in order that those who would, who would want to pass from here to you, they're not able to do so, and none, that's a, the, an operative word, it's an all-encompassing word, none may cross from there to us. Jesus speaks of the finality and the permanency of heaven. Once you die, the decision of location is made and it's a permanent decision made by God himself through his son, the judge, Christ. And the rich man begins to understand this because he pleads that Lazarus might be sent as a missionary to tell his five lost brothers of this place of, of torment. Abraham says, though, the truth is already being told. The prophets and the law will tell your brothers the truth. And some people won't even believe a resurrected man. Which still holds true in 2022. 
important that you understand this. The poor man is not in heaven because he was poor. And the rich man is not in hell because he was rich. If you were to extract just this story out, you might think, I need to get rid of some money because I need to be poor to make it into into heaven. In the context of the Gospel of Luke, Jesus is teaching. You can kind of go back if you want to in your mind's eye a few chapters. In in chapter 13, Jesus talks about this very narrow road that leads to heaven and this very wide road that leads to, to hell. And Jesus calls the people to, here's a word we don't like to say very often in church, repentance. Turn from your old way. Turn from your wicked way. Turn from your worldly way and turn to Jesus. And then Jesus continues to go on to talk a few chapters after that about, about the, the, the shepherd who went looking for the sheep. And remember, there was great joy because of a repentance of a sinner who had turned to Christ. Jesus considers himself that shepherd looking after you, that woman looking for a lost coin, that father who embraces the prodigal that comes home. So all of this is in order. So when he comes to this story, he's not talking about poverty and wealth. He's not talking about having money, having no money. He's talking about having Jesus and not having Jesus. So in context of the Gospel of Luke, we see the story here has nothing to do really with with wealth, although Jesus does come back later on to say, you can't serve both of those things, me and money. We get this deep insight into heaven from Jesus himself right here in Luke chapter 16. It's important for us to consider heaven, Highland. It's important for us to to set our minds on the things above. We are called to live for heaven. We're called to live for the king of heaven. This is why C.S. Lewis in his extremely consequential book, Mere Christianity, writes, if you read history, you will find that the Christians who did most for the present world were just those who thought most of the next. The apostles themselves who set on foot the conversion of the Roman Empire, the great men who built up the Middle Ages, the English evangelicals who abolished the slave trade, all left their mark on earth precisely because their minds were occupied with heaven. Aim at heaven, and you'll get earth thrown in. Aim at earth, and you'll get neither. Highland, Jesus is why you want heaven. And Jesus is how you get to heaven. If you've not put your trust and your faith in him, today, I plead with you, put your life into the life of Christ. Put your trust, put your hope, put your all into Christ. Turn, repentance. Very unpopular world word in the pulpit today. Repentance, turn away from a life of self-centeredness. Turn away from worldly things. Turn away from living life for your own name, your own fame. And turn to Christ. Receive his grace. Believe upon him today. Would you stand with me, please? Let's pray together. Jesus, you are the shepherd. You're the gate. You're the door. Jesus, you are the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus, basically, you're the only hope we have. We have put our hope in so many other things. They left us. They walked away from us. They were spent. They were stolen. 
But Christ, when our hope is in you, that hope can never be diminished. It can never be taken. Not hope like we were crossing our hands being wishful, but hope that is permanent. Hope that serves like, a, like an anchor for our souls. Jesus, you are our only hope in this life and you're our only hope in the life to come. God, we understand from your word, you have told us that when we leave this place, it's a direct relocation, an immediate relocation to your heaven or to a fiery separation in a place that you called hell. And we understand our relocation to heaven has nothing to do with our merit our lifestyle, our giving, our financial situation. Christ is our only hope in this life and in death. It's in that name that we pray and that we believe. Amen.